When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. This week, our critics review Pet Cemetery, another retelling of the Stephen King story. Jason Clark and Amy Simon Starr will hear about the documentary Amazing Grace, which brings us the famous 1972 Los Angeles concert, Aretha Franklin Sings Gospel. As, and we'll also talk about the fantasy movie Shazam, all on Film Week. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. We're going to try and find a good movie for you to see this weekend and get out and enjoy yourself. Don't waste money or your time. I'm joined this week by critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Spines Monitor and Leo Lowenstein with us as well. And just want to remind you that our next Film Week screening tickets just went on sale. Visit kpcc.org slash in person. Get your tickets to Boogie Nights coming up Saturday, July 27th at the Theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles. One of the great ensemble casts in that film directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. We're going to have special guests afterwards, and we look forward to having you there at the Ace. Once again, tickets just on sale, kpcc.org slash in person. Well, we begin with uh, another version of Stephen King's horror story, Pet Cemetery, directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer. Uh, the story of protagonist Lewis questioning his neighbor Judd about a mysterious burial ground in the woods behind their home. But there is something up there. Something that brings things back. So what happened to your dog, Judd? He came back, just like Danny B. said he would, but he was changed. It was when he went after my mother that my daddy put him down for the second time. Sometimes dead is better. Uh, Starring Jason Clark, Amy uh, Simitz, uh, rated R. Peter, what would you think? Well, it's not terrible. It it does... (laughs) You know, I, I should preface this by saying that uh, I, I have not read the book um, uh, or seen the 1989 movie that uh, was the original version of this. Which King wasn't uh, happy with that film, was he? He's I'm generally sure. not happy with anything, anything that's, that's done. I mean, he hates The Shining, uh, the, the Kubrick version. He liked it, though, very much. He did much. like it. He endorsed okay, well, it. He's mellowing. Um, but I just it, – it's a big book and I just feel like, you know, until I've read War and Peace, I have no business reading Pet <laughs> Cemetery. Um Having said that, it it you know it's what it does is try to um, create a situation that's both horrific and sort of symbolic uh, that 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 is about a family um, you know it's using the horror genre as a way to uh, deal with with deep issues of family and fear and death and so forth uh, and. But it's a little too pulpy to really work on that level. I mean, it could have been great. The, the, the central idea, you know, that this, this family suffers all these, these you know, mortal 
uh, defeats and 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 then people you know brought back from the dead. It, it, very early on, you've, their their pet cat is is brought back from the dead. You know, buried in this burial ground that turns out if you bury some something there, it comes back to life. But changed and terrible um so uh the cat is really good it gives like one of the best performances in the film (laughs) (laughs) um but i think overall it just it's just a little too pulpy for the potential uh power of the story itself and um you know i mean there have been so many stephen king adaptations on movies and television i mean the dozens and of the ones that i've seen i'd say this is sort of in the middle Talking about Pet Cemetery, it's in wide release. It's directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmire. Uh, it's adapted from Stephen King's Pet Cemetery by Jeff Bueller. It's rated R. One of the great performances in the documentary Amazing Grace, recorded right here in Los Angeles in 1972 with the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church, Aretha Franklin with an all-star choir. We've been waiting for this documentary for years because of a rights dispute involving Franklin herself, the film directed by Alan Elliott, and... Sidney Pollack, you know his name. Leo, what do you think of the documentary? Well, it lives up to its name, Larry. If, if you're going to see one movie this week, I think, hands down, it has to be this one. Um, yeah, you're right. This has had a long and winding road to release. Uh, it was Pollock, Sidney Pollock shot m- much of this footage of Aretha Franklin performing in 1972. She had already won several Grammys and was already a huge star, but she wanted to kind of go back to her roots and sing some spirituals and some and some gospel. And and uh, and so this this concert happened and the the. The footage was shot and it languished. It just kind of sat around for years and years. And then Alan Elliott uh, found this footage and and tried to finish the film. But Aretha Franklin herself was di- didn't want it released. And uh, then after she passed last year, this was shown to her family and they were on board and they said, "Yeah, this is great. Let's let's let it out." And I have to say, that's. There is nothing more visceral, more transporting, more transcendent than watching Aretha Franklin. And, and you know, you can just – that voice is just crystal and magical and, and honeyed and soulful. And, and you know, I, I can't even come up with adjectives passionate enough to describe it. It's, it's so good. It's this, one of the classic recordings. And I, yeah. have, the, I have the double album, the mm. LP at home. Right. It's on I've – got, I've got it on my Spotify digitally. Mm. It's, it's one of the remarkable recordings uh, as she just it, – it's emotionally transporting. It's spiritual. It's, it's a powerful I think this recording. is one of the greatest concert films that I can think of. Yeah, it definitely is. It's um, – uh, you know it the the background to the the problem initially was it, that when Pollock shot the movie rem, he had come off of they shoot horses don't they a few years before he Gig was young Gig young he was a big hollywood uh, star director he didn't use a clapper board when he shot the documentary mm. 
basic stuff. And so they, there was no way for them in, in the technology of that era, 72, to, to sync the sound in the picture. Mm-hmm. That's why it was held up for so long. And then when Alan Elliott finally took the film over, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and used modern technology, uh, that's only when they were first able to, 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 to do it as a film. It was the best-selling gospel album of all time. Mm. Um, and, uh, and Aretha Franklin, they were, they were showing it at Telluride, and it was canceled like two hours before the screening or something. Because you know? Aretha wouldn't because, sign off yeah, on it? and it's unclear. I think it was more for financial representational reasons mm. than anything else. She claimed that she loved the movie, but she didn't allow it to be shown. But it's, it's, the, it's easily the best testament to her on film. Not that there are very many at all. You know, right. That scene in the Blues Brothers. Um, but but there's very little of her. You know that's that's like this. And, and it it is one of the great music documentaries. There have been other great gospel documentaries like Say Amen Somebody and the film Gospel. Uh, but but this this just takes it all. Uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. She's getting back to her roots in a way that is is so as you say, a little transcendent. That you're just transfixed watching this film. Well, and it's and it's L.A. That's the other thing. It's, There's yeah. local importance. That church is important. Uh, the other singers with her, yeah, very talented. Uh, we're talking about Amazing Grace. And by the way, uh, John Horn of the Frame interviewed Alan Elliott, uh, the rector of of the finished version of Amazing Grace. You can hear John's conversation with Alan uh, by visiting kpcc.org slash the frame. The film is shown at the Arclight Hollywood, uh, the Cinemark in Baldwin Hills, the AMC Burbank, uh, and the Landmark Theater in West Los Angeles. It's rated G. Shazam, a fantasy adventure film directed by David F. Sandberg. Henry Gayden is the uh, screenwriter of the film. Uh, Zachary Levy and Mark Strong star. Peter, what do you think of Shazam? You know, I've been hearing all sorts of wonderful things about this movie from people who have come out of it. And I, I just, you know, yes, I'm not the target audience, but, but I, there are a lot of films that I like for which I am not the target audience. And I thought this was kind of pretty bland and, and, and not wonderful. It's from a comic book? It's from, yes. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, 1939, DC uh, came out with this character who was originally called Captain Marvel mm. uh, for, for, for some time. And then, you know, for obvious reasons, when Marvel came in with their Captain Marvel, <laughs> uh, the name was changed to Shazam. Uh, there was a brief TV series in the 70s, et cetera. But, you know, uh, this is yet another uh, attempt by... Um, you know the DC comic universe to to create a you know a filmic franchise and and go up against the Marvel world and DC uh, movies like you know the Batman films etc have have always been very dark as of late and so this is I think they overcorrected <laughs> this is just like a little too light and fluffy and and and, and negligible the acting is is charming you know uh, uh, you know Zach uh, Levi and the others are are okay the special effects are pretty cheesy it's nothing <laughs> much to look at uh, it 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 really I I don't see that this is going to be the the cornerstone for a major franchise, but I've been wrong so often on this kind of stuff that maybe that's a good that's music to the ears of the people who made this movie. Great, re- it's going to be a hit. I remember the TV series. There was a very very cheesy TV series, Shazam, in the I want to say the seventies. It, it wasn't it. It was animated, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. It, it, I think it was. Yeah, and and uh, you know, liking that. So and so Gomer may- Pyle didn't he say Shazam? <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Shazam uh, stars Zachary. 
Levy. Uh, it's rated PG-13 in wide release. The Best of Enemies stars Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell. Robin Bissell is the director and screenwriter of the movie. Peter? I pretty much like this movie. Uh, it's, it's about the... Um... 1971 in, in Durham, North Carolina, the uh, black uh, elementary school burns down mostly. And so there's this whole uh, issue of, of will the white school be integrated with the black students for the remainder of the school year? Should there be school integration in Durham? And uh, something called a charrette, word I'd never heard of, it's kind of a, uh, a confab to get to a resolution, is set up between uh, both sides of the issue. And um, leading the charge for the white side is... Uh, C.P. Ellis, played by Sam Rockwell, who is a, uh, a, uh, a Ku Klux Klan exalted cyclops is actually his mm. uh, official title. Um, and uh, Ann Atwater, played by uh, Taraji B. Henson, who's, who's, who goes full Taraji B. Henson in this movie. Uh, she's uh, made out to be quite softig in this film and, and, and just goes at C.P. at every opportunity. And eventually... He sort of moves his way over to a reconciliation with his racist views, and uh, you know they become the best of friends. So, I it, it's predictable, it's it's conventional, uh, but it has some powerful moments. The acting by the two leads is strong, as you'd expect. Yeah, I mean it's very strong. I, you know, I, it's, I didn't enjoy this as much as Green Book, which is getting the same knocks as this film for being directed by a white guy, for being male privileged, being male viewed. Da, da, da. You know, it's a movie to make whites feel good. I, you know, I just I don't see that. Like I said, you know, when we spoke about Green Book uh, on the radio some time ago, you know, I, I don't see that we should be knocking every movie that isn't some spikely screed about, you know, racial uh, depredations and systemic racism. The, the argument against this film is that, oh, that he's a Klansman, so really this is no different than, you know, the reprehensible comment that Trump made about good people on all sides. But Sam Rockwell is not a good guy until he becomes a good guy. It's not saying that he's a good guy who happens to be a Klansman. It, it shows the transformation. And in, and the performance is strong enough so that you, you can understand how that works. It's not just sort of fait complete, pasted on to make everybody feel good. So, you know, I hope this movie isn't used as yet another example of, you know, of critics and commentators using this film as an example of, of how to, you know, show their wokeness, because there's a place for these films, too. And this is based on the book The Best of Enemies, Race right. and Redemption in the New South by Osha Gray Davidson. So it is based on a true story. Yeah, it is. I, I, I gather there are some, you know, some changes, as you would expect. But, but yeah, it is based on a true story. Uh, and at the end of the film... They show the actual, uh, you know, the the two characters played by, uh, you know, Aunt, uh, CP and Ann uh, Atwater uh, in in clips. They're both passed away, but you can, we can see how they interacted, and 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 it's it's it's. I always love when they do that, except it sort of detracts from the dr <laughs> the drama at the same time, the made up part. Uh, but it's you know, I think it's it's worth seeing for the acting and for the sentiment. The Best of Enemies, the film starring Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell, Robin Bissell, the director and adapter of the book. It's rated PG-13, biographical drama in wide release. Coming up, we'll hear about the documentary Roll Red Roll and the uh, Japanese film Ramen Shop. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC, back with more reviews from Lael and Peter.
Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Film critics Leo Lowenstein, Peter Rayner are with me this week. Next is the documentary Roll Red Roll, which takes us to Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, the film is directed by Nancy Schwartzman. She makes her feature directorial debut. Leo, what do you think of this documentary? Uh, this is a powerful and... Um deeply disturbing documentary. It's not the first uh, time this tale has been retold. Uh, Just to refresh people's memories, in in 2012, there was a uh, rape of an unconscious 16-year-old girl by a couple of guys and maybe some more from a high school in Steubenville. And uh, a lot of this was captured on video, in in photographs, and there was a huge amount of social media that went on to to um, kind of almost celebrated in the in the wake of this incident, and this case became sort of a lightning rod for how not to use social media for how how for almost to galvanize the Me Too movement in some ways because uh, this was the first time that something like this had had actually been kind of publicly bandied about as a as a mark of pride. This was around the time of, you know, uh, all the stuff at Duke as well, all that going on. Um, this would not have come to light, really, were it not for a woman named Alexandria Goddard, who was a blogger, who um, did her own research because there was a cover-up in the town. The football team and the town were so kind of enmeshed in each other's business. It was like the athletic industrial complex or something. Uh, and and sh- this woman, Alexandria Goddard, did some digging on her own. All of this was completely publicly accessible. Texts, Twitter, things like that. She was able to to find these teenagers writing back and forth about how, you know, bragging about what they did to this girl. And uh, because of her persistence, this came to light. People were horrified. And there was uh, finally a movement on behalf of the victim. Instead of victim shaming and slut shaming, which is what had been happening, that people came out and said, what is going on? What's going on with our youth? There's something endemically wrong with our institutions when when this kind of behavior is allowed and people look the other way. So I, I found this very powerful. Does it take us back, Lael, uh, both to the period, but then also kind of update on what's happened since? A, a little bit, Larry. There was, well, after after these two guys uh, ended up going to getting getting convicted and spending some time in jail, there was, uh, it, it came out that the school had actually been involved in some other cover-ups and there was another girl who had been raped. And so it takes us sort of to the maybe couple of years after after that happened, but um, it, it doesn't take us all the way up to the present day, and there have, has, of course, been a lot. We're since talking, then. talking about the documentary "Roll Red Roll," Peter. Yeah, it, it doesn't really bring it up to date. It doesn't really have to, in a way, because it's so clear, you know, that that this is a, a major story then and now. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a very powerful movie, and I think 
you know, one of the things that one of the many things that demonstrates is how in in our uh, digital age, uh, there's a trail of 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 incrimination mm-hmm. that exists that that didn't exist before you know, 20 years ago. And, 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 you know, as Lael mentioned, this, this all comes out because this blogger was so industrious in tracking down this, you know, chain of tweets going back years and, and stuff that you wouldn't believe would be on the internet of uh, 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 film of, of the, the aftermath of the rape, you know, right in the room and things like that, that were bandied about on the internet as, as trophies. So, so that sort of thing I think is, is, is quote new because, um, uh, in earlier eras, you wouldn't have had that information, and maybe that's one reason why so much of this is so current now. Right. It's because it's so clearly out there and accessible. It's a, it's a chilling reminder of just how uh, much of a like what do you panopticon we live in. Like with everything is caught on film. There's records of everything everywhere, and young people in particular really need to be aware of that because for them it's a point of pride to be able to capture and share and brag about this stuff, and and that needs to be discussed. The film is Roll, Red, Roll, a documentary from Nancy Schwartzman. It's unrated. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. The Japanese-Singaporean drama Ramen Shop stars Takumi Saito and Saiko Matsuda. Eric Koo is the director, and Tan Fong Cheng with Wong Kim Ho are the screenwriters. Lael? You could add this to the list of... um movies that celebrate food, Babette's Feast, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Big Night. Uh, Chocolat. Chocolat, of course, exactly. Um, Tampopo. Tampopo. Oh, Tampopo. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. a really good one. Um, Speaking of noodles, yeah. Yes. Le Grand um, Bouffe. All right, stop. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we could do a whole here. a whole show just about food movies. Um, so uh, it's, it's this, it's a very, it's a sweet kind of family comedic drama where a young man who wants to be a noodle, a ramen cook, um, realizes that there's a whole family legacy of uh, cooking, but he was not allowed to experience it because of a dispute in his family history. So he goes back and finds his relatives and learns about cooking and celebrates the soup. Peter, what did you think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it... uh... It made me hungry, uh, <laughs> you know. I That's mean, it? the big question is: Should you see this movie before you eat or after you eat? <laughs> mm. um, Not on an empty. It's stomach. it's kind of a sweet, very innocuous movie. Uh, it, it doesn't really. Uh, it's not. I don't find it terribly compelling. Uh, but you know, you do. You do find out a lot about how certain ramen dishes are made, uh, which is useful, I suppose. Well, I mean, that's the thing about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. It wasn't just incredible food. It's very poignant film emotionally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always best if you use food as a vehicle. You know, it'd be a good call-in thing sometime. You know, have listeners say, "What? What's your favorite food movie?" Well, we'll plan you that. Yeah. That's good. I yeah. like that. I, yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it was that uh, trite, Peter. You, you were saying it was. You know, innocuous. I, but I, I don't think it earned its place in the pantheon of food movies. No, no, it's not in the food pantheon. <laughs> no, no, no. Ra- ramen Shop, a uh, Japanese and Singaporean film. Uh, it's unrated at the New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. Uh, the British film Peterloo, about the 1819 Peterloo Massacre, stars Rory Kinnear and Maxine Peake, Mike Lee, the writer-director, Peter. Yeah, this is a powerful movie. It's it's long and talky. It's about two and a half hours. Uh, it deals with the the Peterloo massacre, which is not 
especially well known in this country at all. Uh, but um, you know, there was uh, about sixty to one hundred thousand uh, demonstrators uh, who were in uh, St. Peter's uh, Field in Manchester, Northern England, for a peaceful demonstration for universal suffrage and rep- re- you know, representation in Parliament and taxation, etc. And they were set upon by um, you know saber wielding volunteer. Uh, soldiers who who killed, um, I think, uh, 18 people were killed and 600 were wounded. Um, And it's, you know, it's funny with Mike Lee because he's known for these kind of kitchen sink, realistic, working class, working class, mostly, you know, contemporary movies. Wait, what about Gilbert and the Gilbert? Well, I was getting for that. All right. Um, right. (laughs) Get there. But, um, but, you know, he, he is remarkably adept in ways you wouldn't imagine at doing period films. My favorite film of his is the Gilbert and Sullivan film Topsy Turvy. And and Mr. Turner about the the painter is, is also, you know, has its moments. Um, and this film, the period recreation, the costumes, all of that is is phenomenal. And, and you know, everyone is – I said it's talky, but a lot of the talk is quite interesting and, and, and passionate. And it's 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 sort of like being part of a of a really good town hall meeting, you know, where people are debating all sorts of issues. And the massacre itself is is very well done. It's I mean, he's a good action director. So you know, having said that, I do think that twenty minutes could have been cut out of it. Um, uh, but some of the performances, like Rory Kinnear uh, as the character who plays you know Henry the Orator. Uh, Hunt and others are, are are quite good. It's a worthy movie. It was had some controversy because uh, it wasn't accepted at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, which is almost you know a matter of course for Mike Lee movies, and he was pretty pissed off about that. He tends to be very curmudgeonly in general. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but it, it what it did play in Toronto uh, where I saw it, and and you know got a fairly good response there. But I think it's it's better than good, and and one of uh, you know one of the better period recreations. We're talking about Mike Lee's movie Peterloo. One of the things I like about Lee's films, Peter, is that the acting is uh, the performances that he get are, gets are great. And uh, doesn't he use that approach of of spending weeks before a yes. film is actually Months. shot? Rehearsing? I, I think that's right. I think they workshop the script together. They sit yeah. around in a circle and, and, and just keep going through it and through it and through it until it just feels incredibly natural. Secrets and Lies is my favorite Mike Lee film. Yeah. I mean, the reason why more, you know, top tier actors, I mean, he uses wonderful actors, but the reason you don't see Michael Caine and actors like that in his movies is because they can't take out two or three months to, to do these workshops, you know, I mean, but that's the only way he works. So, uh, so your hourly pay on a Mike Lee film is probably not, <laughs> not much, high. but you know, Timothy Spall and some of these actors are, you know, real sports. They, they're, they're in a lot of the films. Um, but it, uh, it does make a difference in terms of perform actors. always say, I wish I had more time to rehearse before we shot. And with Mike Lee, they might be saying maybe we have too much time. <laughs> right, we got it. Yeah, right. Peter Liu, uh, from writer, director, Mike Lee rated PG 13. It's at Lemley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. The Chaperone stars Elizabeth McGovern and Haley Lou Richardson. Michael Engler directs the film. Julian Fellows wrote the screenplay. It's based on Laura Moriarty's book, The Chaperone. Lael? So this is the story of uh, a young of a, of a woman who is trapped in a marriage and living in Topeka, Kansas. This is Elizabeth McGovern, and she meets a very young Louise Brooks who comes to her town and seems to have a 
fair amount of talent and ambition and needs a chaperone to travel with her. Elizabeth McGovern's character takes the job uh, and experiences some things on her own in her life that uh, sort of shake up her world a little bit. She's been needing to get out of the Midwest and she's been needing to see another part of the U.S. and and been needing to sort of live on her own. Um, The problem with the film is that it never really comes alive to me. Uh, Julian Fellows, of course, has worked with McGovern in Downton Abbey. Uh, He's he's such a great period director. And Elizabeth McGovern, by the way, seems almost ageless. She seems like she's the same the same girl we saw in in, uh, What Ordinary People was at her debut. Um, I mean, she's she's absolutely lovely. But there's not really an incredible amount of chemistry either between her and and Louise Brooks or Gwyneth Paltrow, who plays a sort of mysterious person from her past that she meets or sort of any of the characters. I felt like it, it was just a little bit flat, a little bit wan. Um, very, it's very PBS and not in the best way. Uh, it's it's a little stead, I, I would say. PBS is distributing it to selected theaters. Uh, set in early 20th century, Kansas young woman goes to, to New York City. Did, did you feel like it captured the era or it did? did, did. Look, I, I would say costumes, yes. Uh uh, production design, somewhat uh, manner of of dialect, manner of speech, not so much. Uh, right. Julian yeah. Fellows wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know. Mm. The Chaperone, uh, unrated in selected theaters. Uh, the film The Public stars Emilio Estevez and Jenna Malone. It's written and directed by Estevez. Peter? Uh yeah, this film's been uh, in the can for a while. I saw it about two years ago initially at a festival. It's it's a movie about these uh, homeless who uh, people in, in, in Cincinnati who, who take over a public library because it's so freezing cold outside that they just don't want to leave. And that sets up a whole, you know, police standoff. Uh, and Emilio Estevez is, is uh, sort of the uh, their advocate. Um, it, it, it's well characterized. There are some ju- juicy performances in it, but I think it kind of, uh, goes off the rails. Lael, you have a quick thought I on liked, this? I liked it better than Peter did. I actually thought, yes, it's earnest and it, it tries a little too hard, but I, I, it kind of, you know, it, it sucked me in. I don't think Emilio Estevez has spent so much time inside a public institution since what, The Breakfast Club. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, there's a quote line. <laughs> the Public uh, from writer-director and star Emilio Estevez. It's rated PG-13 in select theaters. We have more to come on Film Week right here on 89.3 KPCC. So Mike just tweeted about Shazam. We were talking about the new film this week and said, I just looked it up. It was not animated, as your guest just mentioned on Film Week. Actually, it was me. I was the one, Mike, in my head. I see it as an animated series. So I guess I guess I'm wrong. It was poor uh, memory storage of that. Thank you for setting the record straight. We continue with our Film Week critics, Leah Lowenstein and Peter Rayner. We have a couple films quickly to talk about. And then we have an author to talk about the legacy of Millicent Patrick, who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon, that, that classic costume in that universal monster film. But the next movie is Storm Boy, directed by... Sean Seat. It stars Jai uh, Courtney, uh, Courtney, excuse me, and Jeffrey Rush. Justin Monjo is the screenwriter. Uh, Leo, what do you think of Storm Boy? A, a, a fairly non-distinct uh, boy and his pelican story. Uh, we've seen this 
before a million times everything from the water horse to you know old yeller and uh it's the story told through the lens of the the past jeffrey rush plays a grandpa who is looking back on his youth when he had this beloved pelican mr percival uh played and there's and and the young jeffrey rush is played by a kid every bit as cute as freddie highmore at his peak um it it just doesn't go anywhere new i feel like we've seen every every one of these tropes every one of these lines every one of these moments before you know if you love something let it go all of that i just it went nowhere new and i i thought the score was a little bit lackluster peter it's kind of sweet, but I, I kept wondering how did they train the pelicans to do all that? You know, they have like a pelican uh, a wrangler in the, in the crescent. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of disposable, but but kind of sweet. I just I I, I want to just cite Michael Restoffen's uh, uh, calling this movie in the L.A. Times today the Pelican Grief. Oh. <laughs> it's a decent family film. I'll say that though, decent the, uh, decent for kids. Australian film Storm Boy. It's in selected theaters, rated PG. And a quick mention of Claire Denis' uh, new film High Life, starring Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. I like Claire Denis as a director. Sometimes this is not one of the films of hers that I really enjoyed. She's she's a fascinating director in that she always takes risks and she's she's intrigued with outsiders. Uh, Chocolat, uh, a film set in Cameroon, uh, was one of one of my favorite films of hers. And another one called Nanette and Boni, I think, set in the south of France. This features Robert Pattinson living in space in a sort of futuristic dystopian, and then there were none kind of movie. It's very elliptical, very inscrutable. You, you don't know what's going on from one minute to the next. You have to piece it together. There's some semblance of a plot, but it's sort of style over substance. Too many bodily fluids and scatological instances for my taste, um, and it didn't all hang together. Speaking of piece together, it's a French, British, German, Polish, and U.S. co-production. Wow. So, so lots of international funding uh, for High Life, Claire Denis film. It's rated R at the Arclight in Hollywood and the Landmark in West L.A. Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive, in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago, immensely strong and destructive. A woman's beauty, the bait that brought it out of its lair. See underwater thrills never photographed before. See titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. Boy, Art Gilmore knew how to narrate a, a, a sci-fi film. Universal's monster hit of 1954, Creature from the Black Lagoon. The studio returning to a genre that helped define it in the 1930s and 40s. Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, and The Wolfman. Universal owned monster films. And despite Frankenstein being based on Mary Shelley's novel, the Universal Studios monsters are often associated with men. The actors playing them, the directors of those films. But in Mallory O'Meara's new book, we find out the iconic creature from the Black Lagoon was designed by a woman, Millicent Patrick. She was a former Disney animator who'd also grown up in the shadow of Hearst Castle. Ms. O'Meara's book is titled Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Mallory, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about Millicent. I share your love of this genre 
right. Love Creature of the Black Lagoon. When it comes on TV, I have to stop mm-hmm. and and watch it. Uh, and the the little trailer for it, uh, you know, gives the idea of how much fun the film is. But when did Melison come on your radar? So I was about 17 years old, and I'm the only one in my family who's a big monster fan, so I didn't have a big brother or big sister or aunt or uncle to sort of show me these films. So I was going through all the classics to sort of teach myself. You know, I watched Frankenstein, Wolfman, The Mummy, and Creature, which is the last monster in that pantheon, was the last movie I watched. Fell in love with it. I just thought it was an incredible film. I think it really still holds up even today. And I did what a lot of nerds do after I watched it. I had to go online and see how how it was made, how the suit was made, uh, any behind the scenes photos I could find. And while I was searching in a Google image search, I found a picture of a woman working on the monster suit. And the caption said, Millicent Patrick, designer and illustrator. And it was the very first moment in my life where I had seen a woman working on a monster movie. All my heroes at that point were, you know, the monster greats, Dick Smith, Tom Savini, Rick Baker. And I never envisioned myself in that world. And I saw this woman working on Creature and I thought, oh, my God, I can do this, too. She also looks so glamorous in every one of the the photos. It's funny because she almost looks like a star as opposed to a behind-the-scenes person. Absolutely. Well, she was a background actress as well, but that was a really big part of her personality is that she loved to dress up every day. She was always in heels and pearls and beautiful dresses, so she really stuck out. So uh, let's start with her design for the creature. How did she get that commission at Universal, and what do we know about her inspiration for the design? So she started there at Universal just working as a background actress, but because she was this really talented artist, as many listeners might know, if you are on set, there's a lot of downtime. So she used her downtime in between scenes to sketch portraits of her co-stars. So while she was sketching, she had all these great pieces of art on her, and she was in the makeup chair, and a man named Bud Westmore, who ran the Universal makeup shop, saw them, thought she was so talented, and hired her for what we would call now a concept artist. And that's how she started. She started doing just straight makeups, like beauty makeup designs, until Universal decided to dip back into their monster legacy and go into science fiction. So she designed the monster for the Universal's very first science fiction movie, which was It Came From Outer Space, which was uh, the original treatment for that movie was written by Ray Bradbury, which is pretty cool. And she knocked it out of the park. So they wanted her to keep working on that. And what uh, what from your research did you find about how she conceived of uh, the creature and, and what he would, you know, the idea of his design? So what she did is she went back into, because the film has, a, as many science fiction films back in the day had, it has a thin veneer of actual science on top of it. And so she went, went back and looked at a lot of fossils of fish and reptiles for when uh, animals were existing in the Devonian era, which is where the animal is supposed to be from in the movie. And she did tons of scientific research and looked for animals with scales and fish and swimming animals. And she sort of put all these together into this really incredible design. Don't you love when they do the science explanation oh, in yes. these films? And I the deep it. voice. Yes, right. The scientist yes. explains to the, the police officer or whoever, oh, yeah. you know, the person is. Uh, I would like to have played that character. Yeah, know, <laughs> what yeah, we have that, here is yeah. A, yeah. yeah. Who's, the, who's the guy who always, uh, the guy who always plays that, yeah. that role? Uh, Mallory O'Meara is author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Her 
story goes beyond just the design of the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, her father, a uh, very important part of the construction of uh, Hearst Castle, working under the uh, remarkable architect Julia Morgan, uh, designing that showplace, um, and then finding her way to Hollywood, uh, working at Disney. Uh, she had an uh, important role on Fantasia, right, among that core of women who worked on the film. Yeah, that was the first movie that she animated on, and she animated the uh, Night on Bald Mountain sequence. So she worked on Chernobog, who is my favorite animated monster, and when I found out that she worked on both my favorite animated monster and my one of my favorite live-action monsters, I just thought, wow, she's okay. the queen. Got to do the book. All yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, and so she left after the labor dispute, but she didn't go on strike? She, well, she, the problem was it was not a great time to be working at Disney. This is right after they finished working on Dumbo, which she also animated on, but Millicent was plagued by migraines, so there were strikes going on at the studio, a lot of union tension, but staring at a light box all day was very, very di- physically difficult for her. So she thought, mm, probably a good time to leave Disney. All right. We'll continue with Mallory O'Meara. You're listening to Film Week. I sure hope to see you coming up at our next Film Week screening at the Theater at Ace Hotel, downtown Los Angeles. It's going to be Saturday night, July 27th, and we're showing Boogie Nights. Los Angeles, San Fernando Valley, the late 1970s. The adult film industry is transitioning into home video with the introduction of VCRs. And you see in uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, That Transition, a tremendous ensemble cast in Boogie Nights. And we're going to show the film on the big screen at the Ace. It's going to be a hot ticket. We want you to get yours right now. KPCC.org slash in person. We remind you that Boogie Nights is, it's pretty hard R-rated film, sexual situations, a lot of nudity, so adult-oriented. We'd love to see you there, and our post-screening conversation as well should be a lot of fun as we talk about the film. Right now, we're talking about the creature of the Black Lagoon and the woman who designed the look of the creature, this iconic universal sci-fi monster. Mallory O'Meara is the author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what happened to her after the film um, is being released. She goes out for about a month on a publicity tour that Universal, uh, to help promote the film, sends her out on. Sounds like the tour went well, but not the aftermath. Well, the problem was while she was out on tour, uh, she was having like, you know, she was on newspapers, uh, magazines, radio, TV interviews. She really it was a huge tour for her. But before she left, uh, her boss who hired her, Bud Westmore, at the Universal Monster Shop, said, this is great. You can go out on the tour, but you have to lie and tell people that I designed it. You can't take credit for this because back in the day, you know, this was the 50s. There weren't uh, 10 minute end crawls at the end of the movies. Saying, Where everybody's role is. You know. Yes. It was only the heads of production who got credit. So up until this point, only he would get credit for the makeups and films. And it was sort of unheard of to send a concept artist or a creature designer out to sort of say, hey, no, it was really me who did this. He was very unhappy about it. So even though she did the tour and was chaperoned, had a, a script that she read from, always attributed the design to Bud, he was still so jealous of all 
all of that massive amount of attention that she was receiving. And he fired her. And she came back from her tour, got back to Los Angeles, and she had no job, was taken off all the other films she was working on and never worked behind the scenes ever again. And no one knew what happened to her. Were, were you able to determine the film she was lined up to work on had she not been fired? Yes, there were two. There was a, um, a horror film, This Island Earth, which they already had been using some of her designs for and she was doing the costumes for. But there was another film called Captain Lightfoot that she was doing beauty makeups for and they pulled her off of both. Wow. So at at this point, does she find herself persona non grata in Hollywood generally after being fired at Universal? Yeah. Well, what people need to understand is back then, so the Westmores were truly a makeup dynasty. Bud Westmore was the son of a man named George Westmore, who quite literally invented the idea of a makeup department. And there was a period of time where all five Westmore brothers headed up a major studio uh, makeup-wise, you know, Paramount, uh, Warner Brothers, Universal, Eagle Lion. They were truly, truly a dynasty. And being out with the Westmores was not a good thing. Thing for there's your a career. book just in that family. Yeah. Wow. If, if, if you are interested, there's a great book by Frank Westmore, who is one of the brothers called The Westmores of Hollywood, which has quite a bit of dirt. It is a, a fascinating family, but they were very notorious for you know being alcoholics and gambling and many wives, many scandals. And they're very interesting, but they uh, unfortunately took a lot of other careers in their wake. So she was just frozen out of other jobs. Yes. What did she do then? How did she reinvent herself? You'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually know, but okay. I don't know. <laughs> it is a big. Well, it is a big secret. It's amazing because uh, um, for the past sixty-five years, no one's known what happened to her. When I started writing the book, no one even knew if she was alive. She didn't have a Wikipedia page, which she does now, but it is full of incorrect information. And she was this big mystery in the monster world for decades and decades. And it isn't until now that people know what happened to her. Uh, and she went by different names, too, at different Seven points. of them. Seven wow. different names. A researcher's true nightmare. Yeah, I was going to say, that's <laughs> got to be – yeah, I was wondering, is this the same person? We're yeah, to, yes. to figure that to figure that all out. And there were tragedies in her life. Many. And, yeah, I mean, this is a very almost operatic life that you describe here. Yeah, I, I've been calling her the Forrest Gump of Southern California because over the course of her life, besides you know growing up at Hearst Castle, working at Disney, working as a background actor, Actress, uh, designing at Universal, she interacted with so many big personalities and went so many places. I mean, her life, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's really, really like incredible. Now, you can see her on screen, right? Because after this, she did some bit parts. Yeah, she and she was doing them before. Uh, you can see her in some TV shows, uh, in the backgrounds of some films. Uh, Ab- Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd. She gets a single line, but you can see her there in one of the tavern scenes. But because she was so striking and so beautiful, she was used frequently in the promotional materials for a lot of movies. There's a film, The World in His Arms, and on the poster you can see her in the background because she truly, truly stands out. Very striking and and knows how to address the camera because all of the photos that you see, I mean, she looks like a professional model in how she poses. Oh, yeah. And that's well, that's how she actually got into uh, acting was she was a trade show model for a very long time in Southern California. And she got uh, discovered by William Hawks, which is Howard Hawks' brother. She was standing on the corner waiting for a bus one day after she had been modeling and she was in her pearls and her dress and in her heels. And he said, 
oh my God, look at you. Do you want to be in the pictures? And of course you said yes. <laughs> and that's how she got in. But but she had her bona fides as an artist because she was a Schwinnard uh, graduate, what's now CalArts, right? Yes. She went there. She went there on scholarship uh, and she studied under Nelbert Schoenard, who ran the art school there. And because of Nelbert Schoenard's re- relationship, professional relationship with Disney, there was sort of a Disney pipeline coming from that art school for animators and artists. And Disney asked her to come work for him. And that was her first job right out of college. Wow. So you can you can say she's one of the first woman animators yes. at Disney. She's yes. in that in that department. Yeah, she truly has an incredible legacy in the world of art and film. We were just talking about Shape of Water, that which which would have been really impossible or wouldn't would have been a different film for sure without her contribution without you know, her design. Oh, absolutely. Her artistic influence is seen constantly. The Creature is such an iconic movie. Just that, but all the other things she worked on from it came from outer space, this island earth, Fantasia, Dumbo. She really was a pioneer. You have a nice comment uh, from uh, Del Toro about uh, about the book and about the importance of of Patrick's work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Shape of Water is essentially Del Toro's love letter to Creature from the Black Lagoon, and that design is really an homage to hers. And um, what kind of response your book has been out, I guess, about a month or so to this point? So have you had any people that since you know, contacted you who knew her, people maybe you weren't even aware of when you were researching the book? Yeah, actually, that just happened. I had an event at the West Valley Library in Reseda. And so George, George Tobias was one of Millicent's very best friends. He was an actor best known for his work on Bewitched. And George Tobias is manager and his wife showed up at my signing and they said they knew Millicent. His wife stood up during the Q&A and gave a little talk about how striking and wonderful she truly was. So I'm hoping I get to put a a little extra information in the paperback. All right. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being with us, Mallory. We appreciate a very interesting book about a fascinating person. Thank you so much. Mallory O'Meara, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, her biography of Millicent Patrick, Hollywood Monsters, and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, who created The Creature from the Black Lagoon for the 1954 Universal Sci-Fi Monster Film. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Film Week. Reminder, the tickets to our next Film Week screening, Saturday night, July 27th, Theater at Ace Hotel at kpcc.org slash in person. Have a great weekend. (laughs) 